This is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this episode. This is the second episode in season two Homestead Education. It is Mandy and Angela. Of course, we are so happy that you are here with us today. And this episode is, gosh, it's a it's a big, it's a big reach. It's a big picture type of episode in an introduction to permaculture. I think that um, some people might not even know what permaculture is. And we also individually might have different kind of definitions of what practicing permaculture might mean. Angela and I were talking about um, this episode before the episode started. And in my opinion, it is kind of just like a very deep symbiotic relationship. You and the land and the animals and everybody works together. Angela in her own words, has drank the Kool-Aid. Like she is like all in with the permaculture lifestyle. So she is definitely our go-to today. Um, hi, Angela. I want you to explain what what does it even mean to practice permaculture? Okay. Hi, Mandy. Hi. <laughs> um, okay. So it in its basic form, permaculture, first the words mean permanent agriculture. And it's the merge, the merging of those two words together to form permaculture. But what it really is, this is creating not just a garden, not just a method of keeping animals. This is creating an ecosystem, a working ecosystem that mimics life patterns between plants and animals in nature. So we're not just talking about companion planting. That's part of it. We're not just talking about pasture rotation. That's another part of it. We're talking about using all of these things together to imitate and initiate a naturally thriving ecosystem. And when we look at what Mother Nature does, we don't see pests the way we do out in nature like some of the troubles that farmers are dealing with in a field of corn, right? Mm -hmm. So why is that? And so this is the study and the practice of those things to reduce pests, to increase our crop yields, and to really just absorb more carbon dioxide from the environment through the introduction of more permanent plants. I think that a lot of folks look at um, our current food system and they get frustrated and they look at the state of the environment and they feel helpless and get frustrated. I think there's something coined like environmental anxiety or something like that. Yeah. And I've done a lot of research on this because I don't, I don't drink Kool-Aid without researching it first. Right. I got to make sure the Kool-Aid's good. So (laughs) (laughs) essentially from my understanding, I think it was either the 1940s or the 1970s, the U S decided to ask farmers to grow, expand, their grain and their corn operations and to increase and grow from basically edge to edge of their farm and grow as much corn as they could because something was going on in the Soviet Union and they were running out. And the United States government said, we can supply you with corn. Let's let's make money off exporting corn and grain. And so they asked the farmers 
to really double down and just go grow corn, just grow grain. Well, what ended up happening is when you have these monoswaths of crops, the pest comes in and it's like, oh my God, I have died and gone to heaven. I am in a field of corn. I'm going to annihilate this and I'm going to multiply and I'm going to breed. Whereas before, maybe it was a smaller patch of corn interplanted or surrounded by another crop. So that pest couldn't survive as well. So what ended up happening is you create these super pests. So then this whole cycle started of bringing in some sort of a spray to treat that pest, but then the pest became resistant because that's nature. And this is where things started to split into traditional conventional agriculture as we think of it now from a more natural approach of growing crops and, and livestock and sort of intermixing things to reduce pressure. That's what it is in its basic form. It's trying to get back to a more natural way of growing plants and, uh, and, and, and raising livestock. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's an excellent explanation. And a lot of people probably listening or they're like, oh my gosh, this is over my head, or this seems like so much work. And with, um, we're going to dive into it because I mean, I mean, this is just kind of incredible and you're probably doing it on your homestead to some degree, whether you know you're doing it or not. Um, but it's all, like I said, it's all working together and it might actually truthfully be a little bit more work up front. Um, we kind of touched on a little bit more, you know, things in our season one about planting certain things that, um, that will, you know, come back every year versus, you know, doing something that you have to keep, you know, repetitively doing more work for the individual, more work for the human. Um, so your cost might be more upfront, your labor might be more upfront, but the long-term gain and then the overall reaching big picture, the uh, positive impact that it has on your land and the land as a whole and the environment. And like Angela said, the ecosystem, that's kind of what we're touching on. That's what this means um, to, to practice permaculture. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, people are like, okay, that sounds well and good. If it was so great, why isn't everyone doing it? Um, one, you're incorporating more perennials and anytime you incorporate more perennials, you don't have the instant harvest or yield that you would if you grew an annual, right? So for those unfamiliar with an annual, that's going to be a traditional garden crop, something like we talked about corn or tomatoes. You start it in the spring and then you harvest it in the summer and then come fall or winter it dies. And so you have this very short lifespan, whereas a perennial is something that's going to come back on its own every single year. Up front, you might say, well, I have to wait a really long time for me to get those apples from that apple tree, right? However, you're only doing the work once. You are digging the hole. You're planting the tree. You're going to you know, give it some companions to go around it and help it thrive. The thing that's amazing about it, though, if we're talking about apples, is if you are planting the proper companions around it and giving it support through companion plants and a more natural way of growing, your job's done. Yeah. Um, you have planted deterrents to keep the deer away. You have planted... Um, uh, pollinator attractors to help increase your yields because now they're they're more likely to pollinate your flowers and your blossoms. Um, so up front, it takes a little more research and a little more homework because you want to make sure when you plant that apple, you're planting it with the right companions to help it do that. 
And then you also want to bring in animals like geese. Geese are great at picking up dropped apples and eating that so you're not attracting pests and disease and covering the ground floor with all of this mass and bacteria, right? So then you're looking at, well, how can I bring in geese? So it becomes upfront research. That's what it is. It's a relearning. It's a looking into it and retraining your brain so that you can implement these practices to save yourself work and time year after year. It's an investment. But it's an investment for, I'm going to say the greater good. And like you said, and, you know, we, we've said, I, I think multiple times, we, uh, I believe, are a society or a generation of instant gratification. Um, and that's just honestly, well, not what this lifestyle is. <laughs> it's just not. To me, I, I would, I feel very strongly about that. It's, 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 um, it is and it isn't. Um, and what we're talking about today is something that's sustainable, something that is long lasting. And, um, you know, you could be in one place for 20 years and you start practicing these things and you start, you know, you understand about your soil and the nitrogen content and what you can do to alter that and why it is important to plant some things like Angela was saying with, you know, some others when it comes to um, pest resistant and pollination but it's going to be so sustainable if we're doing it correctly that it's going to be so impactful for the generations to come. Absolutely. And you can feed more people this way. So one of the most common examples and, and sort of my Bible for this is called Restoration Agriculture. We'll link to it in show notes here by Mark Shepard. Um, one of his best examples is I want you to picture a piece of paper. I don't care what size it is. Pretend it's an acre. And pretend that you plant an acre of corn. That's only that much corn, right? From edge to edge. When you look at planting perennials like trees and then companion planting underneath them and start thinking in terms of layers instead of going out, you can minimum have four acres of growing space in that one acre. Because now I'm planting a ground cover, then I'm planting like, like strawberries. And then on top of that, I'm planting cane berries. And then on top of that, I'm planting apples. And then on top of that, I'm planting chestnuts. I have now just quadrupled the amount of food I can grow in that space. So if you want to look at statistics, 40% of the corn grown in the United States goes to livestock. And people are hungry. So we're not going to get into controversial issues, but it's like what people are saying, well, we need more space to grow more food, but we don't have it. No, we just, we do have it. We just need to grow differently. We don't have to stop growing corn, but we can interplant things above and below and around the corn and stop growing just these mono crops so that we can feed people and we can feed the livestock. Mm -hmm. um, Restoration Agriculture, check out that book. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to check it out. I mean, you talk a lot about this on your social media and you did a really good job. I think maybe it was last year, when you were planting trees and you were explaining why you were interplanting and doing those layering. And I encourage people to check it out because, you know, a lot of us need like that visual representation um, to actually see, but it's not, when we talk about permaculture, it's not just food, right? Um, right. It's animals as well. So I think that a really good segue or a good, a good thing that maybe a lot of us have heard about is uh, you see those very picturesque photos of folks in their garden releasing ladybugs and you're probably like why am I why why are they doing that or 
what is the benefit? Or, you know, if you actually pay attention, most of your garden centers will sell them. Um, and that is one of the things that we can do. You are essentially bringing in another layer of the ecosystem or like um, Angela says, you're employing the ladybugs to help with like an aphid problem is why we're typically doing it. And the layers go so deep. Right. Oh so my God. Yeah. It's it's so deep. If you remember Angela mentioned, I think I, I can't remember in which episode, but um, they're bringing in Guinea fowl. Um, and I mean, most people associate Guinea fowl with, well, being very loud and obnoxious, totally. but also uh, tick control. So it, it it is not just it's not just your food. We could get so deep, and we could we could talk about all the different things. But when I think about why we do certain things, and um, it's important for everything to kind of have a purpose. And I think that that's kind of like a very surface level the um, explanation to kind of look at this. What purpose is this animal? What purpose is this plant um, serving for our land, our farm, our homestead, and the greater good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll I'll continue to say it. we don't bring in any animals just because they're cute. Oh my god, I want a mini horse so bad. <laughs> I want one so bad, and I try to think of what what could I use this for that I'm not already getting from my other animals. And the truth is, I already have giant sized horses to provide me with enough manure for compost for growing things. So everything that I bring in here serves a purpose. Um. Okay, so let's. Let's let's start with the sort of okay. I'm interested. I I like the taste of the Kool Aid. What am I gonna do? Okay, you're gonna start reading some books. Go to the show notes. But the first thing, let's just bring it back to crops first, okay? Because I think most people listening are the the majority of our demographic is really interested in growing their own food. We talked about growing perennials. Yes, perennials come back every single year, right? And you can get a shit ton of apples from one apple tree, so that's amazing. But Another reason we bring in, just the same with animals, any plant, is because we're doing more than getting crops from them. They're doing more things than that. So what can perennials do? Well, perennials have more woody stems, right? They have to have stronger stems and plant tissue because they have to survive year after year. So it's not like tender growth like a tomato plant. Well, guess what? In order for that plant to create that more woody and stronger plant tissue, They have to work harder and use more energy to grow those cells to create that tissue. Where do they get that? They pull it in from the atmosphere. They're absorbing carbon dioxide. Bam, more perennials means we reduce carbon dioxide. It's scientifically proven. In addition, their root systems are deeper and stronger. Why is that a good thing? Well, one, they're pulling carbon dioxide from the air into the soil and locking it there. It's not being released into the atmosphere. But two, those root systems are weaving and working their way through soil that could otherwise be really like thick, hard. It could even be clay. And it's going to break it up. It loosens our soil, which is really, really good because then other plant life can grow there and other plants can absorb nutrients. The other thing we touched on less work, but when you have perennials that are around for a long time, Think of what that attracts. Insects now have a shelter. Birds have a shelter. Wildlife's going to come in. And I know we're kind of taught as conventional farmers that all those things are bad. They are so not bad. You want owls. You actually want hawks. Because then if we eliminate those, we complain we have rodent problems. So 
these are all really good things. This is going to help to control pests. It's going to increase pollinators. Um, that's why you want to bring in perennials. And so we have, did I, did we publish a list recently? Maybe we should publish a list in show notes of, of edible perennial crops. There's yeah. a ton. There's a ton more than you think. Um, I think that that's great. That's a good resource for people. And, you know, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you go out to your garden and if you don't see earthworms, you know, it's just like a very basic example. Um, then you got some going on, right? It's, you want to see that you want that ecosystem to be so layered and developed um, that it is working for you or with you. So it is getting to a point to where your the pests that are around, um, the things that like Angela said, were kind of taught to be like, oh no, um, they are working with you. Like I just said, it's not, it's not a relationship that you don't want. It's definitely a relationship that you do want. And it's not detrimental to what you have going on because you have such a layered ecosystem that the pests are going to concentrate on a small portion. They're going to do their work. The earthworms are going to help loosen all your soil. It's, 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 it's so layered. Like we keep saying, um, so I don't know if it's if it's like a mindset or if it's people like getting past that, um, you know, scare tactic of not wanting to see the bugs or not, you know, it, I, I don't know what it is. I think we almost have to kind of like retrain our minds a little bit. It's totally a retraining. And I've heard before that. So let's go back to aphids and ladybugs. We used that example before. You had mentioned that if you have aphids in the garden. You can release ladybugs because they won't hurt your crops, but they will feed on the aphids. And once the aphids are gone, the ladybugs leave. The, the, the key thing is there is when the food is gone, they leave. So the reason I'm emphasizing that is if you have aphids and you're not seeing ladybugs in your garden, you don't have enough aphids for the ladybugs to find them. You cannot see 10 aphids on a crop and be like, I don't have ladybugs and then order a thousand ladybugs to feed on 10 aphids. That's not a balanced working ecosystem. Okay. Do, am I saying let the aphids run rampant in your garden before you do anything? No, but what I am saying is this is a process that takes time. So yes, when I see aphids infesting my garden beds, multiple beds, I order the ladybugs, I release them. They always leave. Eventually, I am going to have built a true permaculture system through all the plants and practices that I'm trying to implement that will help me not have to buy ladybugs anymore because now they're going to have more shelter, natural living spaces to retain them. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, they're going to stick around. They're going to know that this is this is where they come, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you go just if you go out to your garden and you're not again, not seeing those, you know, small pest pressure, it's actually not what you want at all. Yeah, it's too sterile. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just not it's it's not going to give you probably what you are searching for. Um, yeah. So I think. Beyond, well, I'll publish a list in the show notes of edible perennial crops, things that you can easily incorporate regardless of your growing zone into your garden. And I'm trying to do more and more every year. But the next facet isn't just saying, I'm going to stick a blueberry bush over here. Now talk, we need to talk about layering 
the plants. And I'm not just talking about perennials. You do like things. If you like flowers that are annuals, plant them. They certainly serve a purpose. They attract pollinators. It's not saying you have to give up your carrots, your corn, your celery. Those all have a place absolutely in a permaculture homestead garden or farm. It's just about creating and weaving a more interconnected system rather than having it be all or nothing. So when you plant annuals, you can use them um, as, as pollinator attractors. A lot of them are bad bug repellers like nasturtium. Some of them, my nutrients from the soil where they can, um, you know, there's things that are ground covers, some fix nitrogen into the soil. So some of those annuals will, will do that. Absolutely. Perennials, definitely. You kind of get those things because they do come back every year. Strawberries are a great ground cover. Comfrey mines nutrients from the soil. Just look up something like permaculture guild, look up permaculture companion plants online and start thinking about layering plants together in groups, not just outward and horizontally. Start thinking about what can I plant in the shade of this tomato plant? What can I plant in the shade of a raspberry bush that's going to come back every year? So you don't have to sacrifice your annuals by any means. Um, you're thinking so upward that we're talking about chestnut trees. We're talking about oak trees. They have acorns. They're good for wood. They're all serving more than one purpose. Chestnuts, food, lumber, um, shelter for animals. We're talking about things that are, again, edible and offer more than one. They have stacked functions, right? And we're trying to incorporate those trees into our farm. And the reason we're doing that is because we can harvest the nuts, we can sell them, we can store them, we can eat them. But there are things like lettuce that don't thrive in hot sun. And right. so here we are giving them shade cloth. No, don't give them shade cloth. Put them underneath something and then use that full sun spot for something that likes full sun. Right. So we're going to start right. layering. And it is, it is kind of along the same lines of companion planting and just, you know, you've touched on just like the, the rows and rows of the same thing, which are beautiful. And we have talked about how beautiful they are to see. Um, it just requires a lot more, uh, human, I guess, connection with those crops and, and a lot more, it's a lot more laborious. And we talk a lot about companion planting in the homesteading world and in gardening. And this is right along those lines. What can you put somewhere? Think about the, you know, six by six inches by six inches. What, what can go in this tiny space that's actually going to help me, whether it's going to feed my family or, you know, like nasturtium or something like that, deter some type of pest or bug. And how can I make it work? with me that you it is it is definitely we said it already retraining our minds um don't think that you just have to plant a row of tomatoes mm -hmm. great plant a row of tomatoes but like you said put something in between plant them up plant them six or eight inches uh further out than you normally would um or than your seed packet says to and stick something in between those you're Absolutely. not only going to optimize your space and get more food if that's what we're talking about um to your kitchen table but it's going to benefit those plants as well absolutely so we're not only treating problems but we're preventing problems with plants and animals and insects and we're trying to connect the dots between all of the things. Um, 
it doesn't just come down to plants though. It also comes down to animals and it comes down to your landscape. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how animals can contribute to a greater whole. So cows, horses, their manure can be converted into compost. They both um, contribute to a grazing circuit. What is so cool, I'm going to geek out for a second. Horses and cows eat the tips of grass. They eat higher up on a, on a grass blade. They like the top. But then a sheep prefers the grass lower. So if you were to open up a pasture that never had anything on it before, they would wipe out from the top of the grass blade very low. But nutritionally, they actually require what is in the middle of the grass blade. And the horse and the, and the, and the cow require the nutrition that's in the top of the grass blade. It is a perfect system. And I love to geek out over it because it is so cool. Multiply the amount of feed that you have by letting the horses and the cows go first and eat the tippy tops of the grass yep. blades. Yep. Kick them out. Then put the sheep in there and let them eat farther down. And then guess what? After the sheep have eaten up all the grass, kick them out. Put goats in there. They're going to eat the weeds that nobody else before them wanted to eat. So cool. And they love it. And then you have guinea fowl who are all excited because they and the chickens and the turkeys and the ducks are like, there is a shit ton of manure in this pasture because yes. four different species just came through here. They don't want to eat grass. They're going to go in there and they're going to tear that manure apart looking for insects. Now your manure piles just blew up without you having to put a drag through it. So cool. And then it like decomposes. Done. Yeah. Then it's going to turn around and it's going to fertilize the grass. Yeah. And then you're going to let it grow. And then you're going to put the, the cows and the horses back there because you yeah. rotate. And it is all, it is all just a, it's, it's a, a circle. relationship. Yeah. It's literally yeah. a circle of life. I guess what your contribution was putting a halter on the horse or the cow and walking it yep. to that field. That is it. It blows my mind. It is, um, I know I'm, I'm blanking on a movie and I can, I can bring it back up or we can maybe even drop it in show notes that I watch. Biggest Little Farm. Yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. That's permaculture. Um, at its finest. Um, yeah. You know, it was, it was definitely a, a movie, um, if you will, I'm doing air quotes, but it shows, I mean, they really did a good graphic job of showing the rotational system and bringing in all these different, you know, plants and animals to mm -hmm. work with each other to support the land. Yeah, it's all about the land, right? Now, in that pasture that we just had all these animals go through, now it's got four different types of fertilizer. Yep. I mean, if you can ask any farmer, manure that's not well composted with heat is full of hayseed. You just reseeded your pasture by feeding yep. the animals. Yep. I mean, and not only that, but then I love the whole thing about sheep and goats digest the parasites that affect horses and horses stomachs digest the parasites that affect sheep and goats. So you now not only given all of these animals, the nutrition that is optimal for them, you've also just dewormed them. And it's true. It's kind of like it was meant to be this way. Totally. And we're, and we're just kind of starting to figure out that it was supposed to be this way all along. I know. I love it. I get yeah. so excited about it. But then it's not. Okay. So then the other thing that we have to make sure that we talk about, because maybe you don't have animals and that's fine. Maybe you don't have like, you don't, you're just not in a place right now to start thinking about where to put crops and start planting these overstory giant chestnut trees. That's okay. 
Because the first thing that you need to do, whether or not you're retrofitting or starting from scratch, is you need to work with your land. You need to find, we've mentioned this before, where water is going to pool. If you can take advantage of that, especially now, whether or not you believe in climate change, we'll just say it's been getting hotter and drier most places in the summer, we need water. If you can find where that water pools and create like a pond or a little water catchment system of some kind, store the water for later when you need it. I'm actually going to be putting it upon myself in a pasture where every time I try to put anything through there, it slips, it's gross, it's muddy, the horses, it's not good for their legs. I'm just going to turn it into a pond. It makes that it wants to be a pond. I'm going to help it be a pond. Mm -hmm. So start thinking about your land. Don't put livestock buildings and gardens in places where you're setting yourself up for more work, where you're fighting flooding where you're fighting. I mean, I used the example before when I first moved in here, I had this gorgeous open pasture, full sun. It's rich with old manure when this was a cattle farm. I can't put a garden there. It floods. I'm not going to do that. That would be, that would be silly, right? That's just not the best use of the real estate. You could start looking at swales to contain water. You could start monitoring rainfall and figuring out ways to catch water runoff. Rain barrels are a very common and easy way to do that. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, it, it, we talk about it in season one about, you know, if you're just starting out or even if you're not and you want to expand or move or whatever it is, it's just being mindful and watching. Just like look outside after a big rainstorm. Where where do you see water? Where is it pooling? Where is it not? Those types of things. I mean, it, like you were saying, you don't want to create more work for yourself, but also in even the bigger picture or maybe I should say the deeper picture can when you do see things like that think about why that's there or think about maybe it was meant to be there maybe I shouldn't try to completely reroute this like you said you're just going to it wants to be a pond let it be a pond Mm -hmm. you know it's going to bring in other things from the ecosystem that's going to be probably beneficial for that area so I mean it is um it, it as cheesy as it might sound it is kind of just trying to form like an actual relationship with the environment and use it to your benefit because if you're constantly fighting uphill, um, I mean, what, what good is that? So it is like watching, I'm looking out my window right now, just like watching, where does the sun hit? Um, can I grow things here? Will this be good pasture? Does this always flood? Is that, you know, it's, it's just taking time and developing all of that. Um, if you have the ability, it's, it's going to set you up for success. Absolutely. A good place to start is to start doing some research. I mean, there are so many people that have made YouTube videos, written books. Um, but then the other thing is draw a map of your of your plot, whether that be just a residential backyard or maybe you're out in the country. Just draw an overhead map. Where's your house in relation to any outbuildings you have, where you want to put your garden. And this is going to surprise you where you might have a really big, tall oak tree that you thought, I want to cut that down so I can grow something there. Try not to do that unless it's like dead and falling apart. It's going to threaten to like, you know, your family's safety. Look at keeping that there and thinking about raspberries and blackberries will go really great under there. I could put an apple tree under there. It would do just fine. And then what can I plant underneath those things? Mm-hmm. Um, think about how much carbon dioxide that oak tree absorbs per year, which we need now more than ever, and how we can assist that with other plants growing next to it. Things that 
the oak can shade out the sun for these and these things can help the oak to thrive. So it really is a rabbit hole. It really is something that requires research and more intentional planning. I think the thing though, and again, not to sound cheesy, this is kind of all within us already. It's nature. Yes. It's nature. This isn't having to rely on a lab to create a spray in order for us to fix a problem. Yes. I have ticks. I don't want to spray. Mandy mentioned before, I'm bringing in guinea fowl. I'm going to move them around in a little tractor and they're going to eat up my ticks. So it's putting ourselves back into the natural matrix and relying on counterparts and understanding that it's not us against nature. It's in nature and feeding our families and our communities with it and our animals are supporting it. And it's this whole network and I could just go on and on, but I know that people have their lives of their own. So, well, I mean, I think that the easy way to kind of close this out, if you've already kind of started about uh, thinking about companion planting potentially for this up um, coming garden season, you're drinking the Kool-Aid that it is beginning. Like you're starting to do it. So it, 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 it's when it is, it is a deep, relationship and um yeah you're right we could geek out geek out forever um I started yeah. because I got so excited but uh <laughs> <laughs> just take some time do some research like Angela said we're gonna have tons of notes um in the show notes that book will be a, a really good example Angela is a very good resource um and as always if you all need anything absolutely let us know Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram. Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.